Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Mark is where we're going to be. We've been in this series uh, going through the gospel according to Mark. And so if you have your Bible, you can open on up to Mark chapter 9. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Uh, But I'm actually going to start in the book of 2 Peter. Um, what, what you may not realize about Mark, and what I certainly didn't realize before we started this series, is that Mark is, is really, he's, he's a literary genius. He does so many things in the way that he storytells that is really, it's unlike and it's unrivaled in the rest of Scripture, the way that he places and pieces things together. And, and Mark is probably not using his own firsthand accounts of what happened with Jesus as he's writing his story under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's most likely referencing a lot of Paul and Peter's work that they spent in time, especially Peter spent time, so much time with the Messiah, with Christ, walking with him t- day to day. And so Mark is actually writing the gospel according to Mark based off of a lot of stories that Peter is telling him. That doesn't mean that anything is illegitimate or less true. Uh, what it means is that Mark is just sitting in, taking in story after story after story of his good friend Peter. And he, what he does is he then takes all those stories and he distills it down into a gospel. And if you're newer to your Bible, there, there are four gospels, right? The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different people giving us a story or an account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And as we've been going, we've been looking at different things that Jesus has been ushering in, doing, beginning the work that he is, that, that he is starting to put into this planet that we now habitate thousands of years later. But it's significant to know that, that what we're about to read comes from Peter referencing the moment that we're about to jump into in Mark. So 2 Peter in chapter 1. Like I said, if you're in Mark, just stay there. We're going to bounce over in just a sec. Peter writes this. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love that sentence right there. He's like, hey, this isn't some story. This isn't some made up fairy tale. This isn't some self-help kind of book that is being written down. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty and of his glory. This is something that really happened. This isn't some cleverly devised scheme. This is something that'll change your life if you pay attention. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. So now if we flip over to Mark chapter nine, we're gonna read about the story of the transfiguration where Jesus and and a couple of his close disciples go up onto this hill and Jesus becomes transfigured. And we'll talk more about what that means in just a second. But, but it's so significant of a moment for Peter that he's going to reference back to it in his letter that he's writing to encourage the believers in his day. He's like, hey, keep pressing in, keep pressing on because this is real. I was there. I was up on top of the mountain when God spoke to him. He's not, he's not just some plan or he's not just some person or some teacher. He's not just what he looks like on the surface. There's more to it than that. And so with that, let's jump in and read the transfiguration according to Mark. Mark 9, starting in verse 2, says, And after six days, 
Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> Love that. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Jesus, we pray that you would make your word clear this morning. A lot of different things moving in this passage and we just, we don't have enough time to steep in it fully. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you, would you reveal and would you brighten the things that we need to take away this morning? And would you, would you reach us and touch us with your presence this morning, God? We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, lots going on here. But one thing, if we back up into verse nine, or I'm sorry, chapter nine and verse one, uh, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's how we ended last week's passage. If you remember last week's message, uh, it's, this, it's this grandiose moment for Peter where he's like, you're the Christ. And, and Peter or Jesus is like, yeah, good job, Peter. You're right. And then Jesus also then goes on to reveal that he's like, hey, I'm not just the coming Messiah. I'm not just the Christ, the King. I'm also this one who's going to suffer and this one who's going to die on, the beha- on behalf of his people. And, and Peter can't really reconcile those two thoughts, right? Just like, like Jesus help him. He just can't see the coming King and all that that would mean and all the good things that means. And he can't equate that with someone who's also going to be put to death. And so, and so Jesus gives those really loving, tender, soft words to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? Because what Peter's trying to do, we talked about this all last week, is that Peter is trying to tempt, tempt Jesus. More, more accurately, Satan, through Peter, is trying to tempt Jesus to avoid the mission that he came on this earth to do. So we saw last week that Jesus is the coming Christ, long awaited from the Old Testament. And he's also the prophesied about suffering servant that he is the one who's going to come and suffer on behalf of his people. And today we're going to reveal a third part of who Jesus is, namely that he's God. And he's also God. So he says in verse, or chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Several different ideas of what that could be. That could be the kingdom exploding in the book of Acts when we see thousands upon thousands of people coming into the kingdom. That is certainly the kingdom of God moving in power. Amen? It could be that that, is being, that Jesus is referencing here. It could also be um, just the coming and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday. It could be that's what the, the coming kingdom of God is being talked about here by Jesus. It could be his death and resurrection. It could be the destruction of the temple. Or it could be that even as Peter reflects later, we have seen his majesty. We will tell of his glory. That what Jesus is talking about 
is the coming transfiguration. When he says there are some standing here, he's talking about Peter and James and John who are going to ascend this hill with him. And he says, these three are going to get to see the coming kingdom of God in power. So it says in verse two, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now that word transfigured, it shows up four times in your New Testament, two times in a telling of this story. So you can read about the transfiguration in the gospel of Mark, in the gospel of Matthew, in the gospel of Luke. And really you can probably read about it tangentially through John chapter one, where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, which is all just John trying to articulate this fact that no, he's Jesus. He's this person and he's God. And they're put together in one thing. That's what we see before us. And so when you read this word transfigured, it really is very close to this word metamorphosis that we have in English. What, what is it that you know goes through the process of metamorphosis? Is it a butterfly or is it a caterpillar? No, it's a caterpillar, right? Yeah. See, my preschooler got me with that earlier this year. We were driving to preschool one day and, uh, you know, Haven, she's four. She's sitting in the back seat. And she, I was like, hey, what do you think you're going to do at preschool today? And she's like, I'm going to draw a chrysalis. I was like, what? I don't even know what that word means. You know, like, uh, I'm like, are you speaking English? And, and sure enough, they had done what maybe a lot of us had done as kids, right? Do you remember this? I, I think I was in first grade when we got, some, we got some caterpillars and we watched them as they made their little cocoon for us simpletons, right? And, or a chrysalis for you sophisticated folk. And, and they'd go into their, and maybe they're different, honestly. Maybe those are different things, but in my mind, they're one. I have like some, some mom who looks like she's shaking her head on some authority right here in the front row saying they are different. Anyways, <laughs> these caterpillars would go through this metamorphosizing process, if that's even a word, to become a butterfly. And it really is a crazy thing, isn't it? Like it's crazy how different this worm with legs is compared to this beautiful flying butterfly. Like that transformation is drastic, isn't it? And, and, and yet this word shows up when it's talking about Jesus's transfiguration, that he is being transformed. He's, he's becoming something different. And what's happening in this moment is, is Jesus's deity, which has been veiled by his humanity, is finally being broken loose. And for a second, what, what Peter and James and John are able to see is they're able to see Jesus as he is in heaven, not as he is on earth. And so this, there's this overwhelming moment where language itself is even failing Peter, Mark, to be able to describe what's happening. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like, it's like he's, his, his, I mean, how ridiculous does it sound? His clothes are shining wider than any launderer could ever get them. Right? I mean, like, and, and if, you read, if you read the other accounts, if you read Luke, it's like his face is, it's like he's becoming lightning. And so there is this drastic transformation of Jesus Christ right in front of him. Their friend, who they just had revealed days earlier, is this, he's this Christ. He's this coming long-awaited king who's going to make all things right in the world. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And they're still kind of trying to comprehend all that that means. And all of a sudden, dude starts to glow. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for them in a moment. The two other places where we see this same word for transfigured used in the New Testament once in Romans, when Paul's talking about the way that we ought to think as believers, he says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, be transfigured, go through metamorphosis, change like, like our thinking as believers from when we, before we knew Christ to when we gave our life to him should be as different as a caterpillar and a butterfly. 
Like it should be just this completely new way of thinking. Well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna like bend our brain to think how culture thinks, to think how the talking heads on the news, to think how your algorithm thinks that you should think. It is all about now the kingdom of God and how Jesus would call us to think. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind that by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So one of the things for us believers that gets transfigured, that gets transformed is our mind, the way that we think. We ought not to take in information to process the things that are happening in front of us the same way the world does. That, that's good news, isn't it? Because as I look out at the world, all I see is a bunch of people running around with, like chickens with their heads cut off. Like the world's on fire every day. And I get to look at it and you get to look at it. We get to look at our community, unlike anyone else in our community. We get to see the hope. We get to see the redemptive potential laced into the community we live in. This is, it changes the way we think. The second time that it shows up, actually the fourth time. So two times talking about Jesus, two times Paul uses it talking about us as believers. He says in 2 Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. We're being transfigured. We're going through this process of becoming something different into what? Well, I was this old person, but now I'm being transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, so two, two modes of change, if you will. One is that my, my mind is completely set in a different direction than it was before I knew Christ. My mind is being transformed. My mind is being renewed. But the other way is that I am actually being changed. My desires, my, the way, the things that I care about most, the things that I value are being transformed. Now notice this second one, does it happen all at once? Absolutely not. It happens one degree of glory at a time. I don't know how many degrees of glory there are, but I'll tell you this, there's more than you think there are. How many of y'all been following Jesus for a long time and you are not yet the person you thought you would be by now? Can we just see some hands? All right, so we have some honest people in the room. We have some dishonest people in the room. That's just how it goes on a Sunday morning, okay? One degree at a time. Now, praise God, I can say, I am not the man that I wanted to be right now but I am also not who I used to be. I am being renewed. I am being remade. I, my heart is being realigned to, to care about different things, to be passionate about different things, to pursue my character in a different way. All of these things are being transformed. And so in the same way that Jesus is being drastically transfigured before the disciples' eyes, so we ought to be drastically transfigured to the world around us. That it, on the one hand, my thinking, like if I get into a conversation with a friend, it's like, man, you know what? I'm going to stop you for a second. I just actually don't think we think about the world in the same way. I'm, I'm thinking about this through a completely different lens than you are. And that should change the way that you converse with people, with coworkers, with friends at the soccer field, wherever you find yourself. And the other way is that even if people can't say, man, you know what? That guy's a Christian. And I know he goes to church. I know he reads his Bible. Maybe they'll be able to say, man, there's something different about who he used to be. Like, like, like he's not a perfect guy, but man, he's different. He's, something's different about him. And even if they don't know where to attribute it, there should be this metamorphosis that we've gone through to where we're almost unrecognizable to our past self. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So I love that in verse three, it says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. I, like, I just, I can't help but think of it's like, the like the 2022 versions, like your mama couldn't even wash those clothes that white. Like that's how white Jesus was in this moment. Like he was, he was shining like lightning. Do you, do you notice that 
that language itself sometimes fails to grasp and fails to relay what we're actually seeing in a moment. Like I, I could tell you about a sunset I've seen one time. I could tell you about this picturesque thing that happened. I could tell you uh, what it was like, uh, the moment that I got to, to welcome all my kids into the world. Like you could, you could describe some of those things, but you would, you would never feel it unless you were there. And you just have to understand that what's happening, the weight of this moment, that, that uh, the, the apostles, the, the disciples, they're, they're trying so hard to convey what's happening, but, but their language is falling short because it's something that, that the natural can't even fully explain. See, so like Jesus is God. He is God. Now what he did when he came to earth was he veiled his godliness. He, he set that aside as he put on human skin. As he put on this bag of bones that you and I have to the point where Isaiah 53 that we talked about last week said there was nothing even remarkable about him. Like he was just one of the guys. He would blend in with the crowd. Even though this is God incarnate, God in flesh walking amongst us, And for a moment here, Jesus, for whatever reason, invites some of his disciples up the hill to see the moment where where heaven and earth converge, where where you can't contain the heavenly reality. Jesus, I was listening to Alistair Begg said it this way, Jesus never ceased being who he was while he became something completely different than who he was. That's mind bending, isn't it? He never completed being God while he took on the flesh of something that he was actually not human. And so yet we follow this person who is both, who is God and God and man. And and, I mean, this this flies in the face of any of our Mormon friends thinking, any of our Jehovah's Witness friends thinking, who would say, no, he's a good person. He He was created by God. He is significant for sure, this Jesus. But this moment right here shows us, no, he's not some lesser than being than God the Father. He is God himself. Uh, this, this can't all get derailed into just this, like, let's try now and understand the Trinity with our three pound brains this morning. But what we can understand is that this moment of the transfiguration shows us that Jesus, as Psalm 104 says, uh, God himself wraps himself in light. That is the psalmist using human words to try and explain something that they would see, an attribute about God, that the, that the that language can't really satisfy what's actually happening. It's the same thing that's happening to Jesus right here. It would be unmistakably clear that in this moment, these people who were Jesus' close friends followed him around. They were like, okay, he's, he's this king. He's this suffering servant. And now we can see clearly there's something different about him. He's God. He's God himself. The, the, the light that was in him was uncontainable by his human skin in this moment. And, and you've got to love what happens because it's just so real. It said, oh, I'm sorry, we'll get to that in just a sec. Verse four, it says, and there appeared to them, all of them on this mountaintop, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, for some of you, you've been around, you're, you've been walking with Jesus now for a long time. You're familiar with the Old Testament. You know, Moses is there because he represents what? The law, the law. Elijah's there because he represents what? The prophets. And so now you have all of the Old Testament, all of Israel's narrative, all of their history is now brought into this one moment with Jesus. And it just says in in Mark's version that Jesus is just talking with them. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like, oh, hey, Peter's like, that's Moses. How did he know it was Moses? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Just trusting he did. Maybe Moses is like, hey, what's up? Mo, how are you doing? Says, hey to Peter, goes and talks to Jesus. I don't know what happened, but they know that it's Moses and Elijah 
But when we read Luke's version, I'm not going to throw it up on the screen. You can go read it yourself this week. It says that they were talking about Jesus's departure. That's so critical because if you look at the little footnote in your Bible, that word for departure, do you know what word it is? Exodus. It's, it's like Jesus brings Moses and Elijah who, who kind of represent and are there to show us all of the Old Testament is not detachable from what's happening in the New Testament. It's not something we can just move on from. He, he brings them into this moment to say, hey, uh, remember that thing that I had you do with the 40 years in the wilderness and they just kept whining and the people just kept complaining and then you just really, you really wanted to ditch them a couple times, but then you kept reminding me that I need to stick with them. And, and, and do you remember all that thing about the Passover lamb and how that was that lamb that you had to pick and it was blemish free and it was perfect. And you had to slaughter that lamb. And it was, it was by that lamb's blood spread across the doorpost. That was the only way that you got out of Egypt. That was the only way that you were spared from the judgment of the angel of death. And it's like he's explaining the whole story to say, no, hey, this is it. This is it. This is the greater plan that was going on. That was a sign. This is the substance. That, like I am what that was pointing to. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That we, that we can't just... We can't just understand our Old Testament to be this kind of older, crustier, less fun version of a book than our New Testament. And I know, I know we joke about it that way. I know we label it that way sometimes, but, but it helps us see the story fully. Jesus in this moment is saying, hey, this has just been one story all along that I'm coming to rescue and redeem my people, that I'm coming to seek and save that which was lost. Even though these people have strayed from me, I am here that I might deliver them, that I might rescue them, that I might pull them out and exit them from their slavery, from their bondage, from their captivity. And it's just so beautiful to me that, that Jesus decides to have this moment where he just decides to take us and, and show us that, hey, it's all the same story. It's all being wrapped up in one. And, and Peter's having this moment. And he says, he, he says, like Peter says, Peter, Peter has this condition. Uh, so I don't know if you can't really see this in your Bible anywhere, but it, we know that he has this condition because a lot of us still have it today. And it's this condition where, um, where your mouth starts speaking, but your mind hasn't fully engaged yet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I, like, listen, I, I struggle with this from time to time. My wife's always reminding me before I go to meetings and stuff like that. She's like, hey, quick to listen, slow to speak. I'm like, yes, thank you, babe. That's good, right? So Peter, Peter just pipes off and he's like, hey, you know, just, just imagine, okay? Jesus, Moses, Elijah, having this conversation, bringing the Bible full circle, like just bringing Israel's whole redemptive arc right into the moment. And he's just like bringing everything full circle. It's probably just this like mind-blowing moment. And Peter just steps in and he's just like, you know, Jesus, hey, it's good we're here. I am glad you brought me to this. And he's like, let's just stay a while. He's like, let's just make some tents. One for you, one for Mo, one for Elijah. Um, and why was he saying all of that? Because he didn't know what to say. Because <laughs> he was terrified. <laughs> he was scared. He didn't know what to say. So what did he do? What a lot of us do. We should start talking. <laughs> I, I, just, I just wonder if this is there to show us the significance of just stopping for a minute and taking it in. Sometimes there, there are times, even in, even in worship at times, where it just feels like the Spirit is moving and the presence of God is doing things. And, and my inclination is to get up and to kind of roadmap the moment, if you will, to put some explanation to it, to, to invite people further in. But sometimes I wonder if that's just all wrong. 
it's sometimes, I think when, when we're seeing something of heaven piercing through into the world that we inhabit, if the best response is just to shut up and watch, to shut up and listen. Because if you notice what happens, it says he, he starts talking because he didn't know what to say because he was scared. And then what happens? A cloud overshadows them. It's literally like the Lord himself takes a cloud and just shoves it on Peter's mouth. And he's like, stop talking, please. For the love of me, just keep quiet. And the one thing that comes out of the Lord's mouth is the same thing we hear at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. In other, in other versions of the story, we have the line, in whom I am well pleased. If you're ever convinced that what you need more is than just your identity being reaffirmed by the father, you're wrong. At, at its core, what we consistently need to be reminded of is that Jesus, Jesus, because of Jesus, the father says to every single person in this room, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. I am pleased with you. God decides to reaffirm Jesus twice with those very same words. And in this, and this time he adds, listen to him, obey him, follow him, not just as a rabbi, not just as a teacher, but as God like trust in him, follow after him. This is the invitation. So you got to love that Peter just gets, you know, he just gets interrupted in a moment. They have this, they have this kind of profound encounter with the Lord, with Jesus right in front of them. And then it just simply, as, as quick as it's there is as quick as it fades almost, which is a good reminder for every single student in the room who's just coming back from Desperation Conference. I just, I think of this every year. Um, it's so awesome to go to conference and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm getting some of the stories as they're coming in. I mean, we had, we, had a, we had a kid that we know who went down there, not a Christian, came back a Christian. One kid. That's amazing. Praise the Lord, right? We also, like, a couple middle schoolers that were just lost, wrecked in a moment, bawling on the floor. I love that just as much. It's so good, right? It's so good. And yet, it's not meant to just be bottled up to be experienced there. It's meant to be brought here. Just as quick as the three disciples go up the hill, they have to come back down. The, the moment wasn't meant to just stay there. The, the, the answer in this time is not to, hey, let's build some tents and hang out for a while. It's no, now go. Take the revelation that you've been given and, and share that with the world around you. And so they're going back down the hill. And this is where I'm just so refreshed. And I hope that some of you are refreshed this morning. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. So you can just kind of imagine, crazy moment up on a mountaintop. They're walking down the hill. Jesus is like, hey, don't tell anybody until this happens. They're like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. All right, sounds great, Jesus. And then he's like probably walking in front of them just a little bit. And then I just imagine them going like, what? <laughs> Do you understand what he's, like they just, they still don't get it. They don't get it. Surely, surely, like we talked about last week, surely Peter is still wrestling with all of this. Whether it's his own selfishness, whether it's his own cowardice, whether it's just the fact that he's a human being like you and me, Peter's still having a hard time comprehending how all of this is wrapped up in one person. And so they're talking, they're like, what do you mean the resurrection of the dead? How do we do this? All, all of these last few verses tells me this. They still have questions. They've seen things that you swear, well, if I could just see Insert whatever blank miraculous thing that you want from the Lord to be able to validate in your mind, faith in him. They've had that moment, maybe crazier than anybody else captured in scripture. And what happens is 
they still don't understand everything. Can't we take some courage in that? Can't we take a little heart in that? That, that Peter has just had in a moment, this deluge of information about who Jesus Christ is. He's just gotten this complete download. He's gotten to see it up front and personal and he still doesn't quite get it. And all those other verses, I, I, we could take the time to explain them, but the answer is John the Baptist. If you, for those of you nerds who are just like, wait, what does it mean, Elijah, he's already come? Answer, John the Baptist, look it up on your own time. <laughs> but we go back now to Peter's words. Peter in his letters, it's almost like he's, he's aged a little bit. He's come into his own a little bit. He, he has a little more maturity, a little more of his ministry legs underneath him. He's probably not full of as much vinegar as he was back in the day. And he just kind of steadied a little, which like, I think that's, that's probably a place we're all longing to be one day when faith is not just so like mountaintop and valley, but it just is this, this quiet ascent as we just keep getting transformed one degree to another, right? But if we back up from the passage that we read to open up the service today, if we go all the way back into, into 1 Peter, um, or I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Um, no, I'm sorry. What is the slide that I have back there, Judy? There we go. Five. Five. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. To, to supplement your faith, whether your faith is like gigantic this morning or whether it's dwindling and it's almost gone, supplement that faith with virtue. What's virtue? Virtue is doing the right thing. A lot of times it's, it's pretty plain and simple. You can, you can try and make the Bible out to be some mysterious code that you don't know how it's calling you to live or what it's asking you to do, but it's pretty, it's, it's pretty simple and straightforward, isn't it? Honor your wife. Honor your, honor your mom and dad if you're a kid. Like, don't steal things. Don't covet after your neighbor's stuff. Don't commit adultery. Don't have this, like, unchecked lust in your heart. I mean, there's, I mean, we just go down the list of Ten Commandments. That's not rocket science, right? Don't worship any other gods before him. Like, keep the Sabbath day. There's all these little things. Like, so he says, as you are endeavoring in this journey called faith, supplement that faith with virtue, with doing the right thing. Supplement that virtue Sorry, I lost my place here. And virtue with knowledge. So as we endeavor to do the right thing, I take this to mean we supplement that virtue with knowledge. So what do we do? We keep studying the scriptures. We keep studying and, and opening this book up and we ask ourselves more and more, what, what would Jesus do? It's not just a bracelet for me. I'm actually asking the question, what would Jesus do? How can I get to know his life better? How can I get to know this grand redemptive arc called the Bible? Study it, read it. We are supplementing our faith with virtue and that virtue with knowledge. We're learning and knowledge with self-control. Knowledge with self-control. In, in other words, have this, have this ferocity towards the sin that's entangling you. Quit tolerating the things that you know are weighing you down. Ruthlessly eliminate the sin in your life. Take the drastic step. Whether it's something you're looking at on your phone that you know you shouldn't be. Whether it's a way that you're talking to your spouse whether it's the way that you keep coveting after things, whatever's causing it, take the vicious next step so that you can be better practiced in self-control. And this is not moralism that we're talking about. The Bible's not trying to ask you just to be a better person. And we'll get there in just a minute. But he says, supplement that with self-control. That self-control will yield in you steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection, this becomes the cornerstone then here is love. Keep endeavoring to love one another, to love Jesus more and more. 
Peter says, for if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was preparing this message this week, that, that sentence rang like a gong in my ears. There are some of you that feel like your journey with the Lord is ineffective and unfruitful. And I just wonder if you need to just come back to the basics and go through this list, reread through that list and just pursue him right through there. Not that there's something that you can do to put God in your debt, but as you do the right things, you're doing this practice, uh, which, which John's gonna call abiding. We're just trying to remain closer to him. I'm trying to detach what nourishment I'm getting from the world and I'm trying to plant it in him. If you are feeling tired because you feel ineffective or unfruitful, I'm not saying this for sure. I just wonder if you are neglecting abiding and you need to come back to it. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from the former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? And what, how does Peter close off this kind of just like monumental passage of scripture where he's like, hey, leave the past in the, pla- in the past. You have been called. You have been set free. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. Keep pushing towards that. Keep nourishing that in your life. And he said, you will never fall as long as it's this spirit-driven, grace-driven effort to keep on becoming more like him. And Peter says, hey, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them. I'm not talking about anything new this morning, am I? He says, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. What, what do you think the gathering of God's people every week is, is gotta be about on some level? Stirring each other up by way of reminder. Just coming back to these basics, just coming back to this gospel-obsessed group of people where we just keep on pushing in and we try and stir each other up. Peter says, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that my departure so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And then he goes into our opening passage. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter, he just comes back and he's like, listen, I was, I was up there with him. This isn't, this isn't some game we're playing. Christianity is not just some equation that we're trying to gamify so that we hopefully come up net positive in the end and we hopefully go to this place where there is no more suffering and no more pain. No, this is real. This is real life here. Like heaven and hell are, are places that are going to be populated. As we keep pushing on, our endeavor is to become more like him, not just so that we can feel better about ourselves, so we can wear this kind of morality compass, but so we can walk in the power that Peter is talking about. So we can actually become more like Christ, so that we become changed, so that we become altered, so the, to the point of the fact it's like, man, I, I used to look like a caterpillar compared to where I'm at right now. 
Maybe I'm beating that analogy too far. Like, look at me, spread my wings. I'm just going to keep on flying towards Jesus. No, don't clap. Don't clap for that. That's, that's bad. That's bad. Do you see that Peter's plea after all of it's said and done, he's had his high highs. He's had his low lows. He's like, I'm just going to keep banging this same drum. Keep back coming. Keep coming back to this pursuit of Christ. Keep putting off the old self. Keep walking into all that he has for you. This isn't, this isn't just church on Sundays, if you will. This isn't just jumping in with a group of friends who now do life group and who do some community together. No, this is life altering gospel that doesn't, that doesn't leave me the same as when I came in before. I have a new way of thinking. I've been transfigured in the way that I think. I've been transfigured in the way that I act. And so I'm gonna keep on pressing in as I long to see him return. Because again, there is no cruising altitude for Christianity. Doesn't this just fly in the face of that? Like there's no just point where you're just like, oh man, you know what? I did it. I went to church for 20 years. I read my Bible for 20 years. I, I prayed for 20 years. And now all of a sudden, check. I just got it now. Like it's on me. Now, Peter says, we always keep coming back to this. There's always more to grow. There's always another degree of glory to be transformed into. Keep pushing in, keep going on. And at the end of all that, Peter still walks down the hill at the end of the day and he has questions. Let that, let that be a comfort to your soul this morning. Because some, I, I, man, I'm talking with people in my life, people I love who've been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years and they still, man, life just comes at you fast sometimes. And the marriage isn't what we thought it was. And this person, my friend, they're going through this thing that is unbelievable that they're going through that. And there's questions. And it feels like faithlessness, right? It feels like a betrayal. But the, the truth is, is that this continual endeavor in the midst of questions is what proves your faith. And so keep pressing, keep going, and keep asking questions. And if I were you, I'd actually probably close this sermon to say, and avoid the people who aren't asking questions. Let's stand. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we just ask that you would meet us in this endeavor. God, you're so good and you're so faithful to show us these beautiful mountaintop moments throughout our faith. And, and God, we, we, do, we praise you for what you did with the students this week. And we pray that that would um, be seeds that bear fruit uh, for seasons to come, Lord, in their life. And God, for all of us as a community, would we not... Would we not get lax in our pursuit of you? Would we not just kind of slip it into cruise as we're going throughout our life? Would we just continually, relentlessly, in a desperate sort of way, pursue you, Jesus? We need you and we love you. Holy Spirit, come. Come fill us up as you send us out of this place into the world that we're living in. Lord, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.